here's something you may or may not know about me. This is probably my favorite drink, right? And it's not just dirty water. I know that probably is what it could look like. No, it is half tea and half, what do you think? That's right. Dude, it's just like the perfect blend, right? You got the half sweet. Now, if you really want to go for it, you do the Chick-fil-A version of this, and it's just 10 times better. But any half sweet tea, half lemonade will do. It's an incredible drink, but you take two good things and you put them together, and it's just even better. It's amazing how that works, isn't it? Two good things, you put them together, it becomes even better. In fact, it's so good, there's actually a name for it. You know the name of this drink? Say it with me. The Arnold Palmer, that's right. It's such a good concoction, mix and blend, that they even have a name for it. You go to any restaurant, you say, like an Arnold Palmer, and that's what they give you. Half tea, half lemonade, it's great. Which makes you start to think, well, if mixing those two things together work out well, surely that works in so many other environments. Surely, if that's that good, we could do the same thing with other things as well. So it's early morning. So let's talk breakfast foods and breakfast drinks. So orange juice, we would say, ah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good drink. It's a good beverage, especially for breakfast. What could we possibly put with orange juice in the morning that would be good? Milk. It's a great idea. Milk is the perfect breakfast drink as well. You mix the two together, and you have something that's probably just as good as an Arnold Palmer. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, there's no way. There's absolutely, in fact, it smells so bad, we're going to have to move over here just for a little bit. No. See, let me help you understand here. We, we did the same thing, yet somehow it turned out very differently, didn't it? We took one thing where you took two good things, you put them together, you mixed them 50-50, half and half, half tea, half lemonade, and you got something that is incredible. You even have a name, after, you have, have a name specifically for it. We take two other things, right? You took milk. Milk's not a bad thing. You took orange juice, not a bad thing. You put them together, and there's not a name that goes with this. It's terrible. It's horrible. It smells bad. I have no doubt it tastes bad. I tried to get my kids to taste this the other day just to see. They wouldn't even go for it. You know it's bad if your three toddlers won't even try it. There's no chance. There's no chance. See, there's some areas in our life where compromise is a great idea. Compromise means... You give and you take. It's 50-50. And compromise has great place in a lot of different environments. Your job, for example, great environment to compromise as you're working on projects together. Well, how about I do this and then you do that? How about I meet you halfway? Let's work something out. Let's negotiate. Let's compromise. It's a great idea in a lot of work environments. Let's talk about families for a second. We can't survive without compromise in families. No, it's a constant give and take. Well, where do you want to go for dinner? No, where do you want to go for dinner? They're totally opposite. So let's meet in the middle. Let's figure out, how, well, let's go to your place today. Let's go to my place tomorrow. There's compromise. We think about our communities. We all don't have the same opinions, the same beliefs. We don't think and see things always the same. So what do we do? To get along, we compromise. I think compromise is a great thing in a lot of environments and in a lot of relationships, but not always. Not always. In fact, compromise in certain parts of your life turn out horrible, absolutely terrible. Your faith is one of those. There's no compromising in your relationship with Jesus. 
It's not, well, Jesus, I'll give you 50%, but I'm going to need my other 50% to go to someone else. Compromise in your faith and compromise in your relationship with Jesus is terrible. It doesn't work. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active. Listen to this next part and get the visual with me. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It doesn't really sound like the word of God is in the mood of compromising, does it? No, it's like, no. The word of God is true and absolute, and it will divide. That doesn't sound like a nice compromise. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This morning, we're going to look at the idea of compromise. We've been looking at the different churches in Revelation. The church today, we're going to see a lot of good things in the church, but it was also a compromising church. Remember the question I want us to be wrestling with as well. Not just what is Jesus saying to these early churches and these local churches we're reading out of Revelation. Let's be asking the question, Jesus, what would you say to our church as well? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the word that you give us. I pray that we would be listening. I pray that we would be attentive. I pray that we would be paying attention for maybe the ways or the areas or the times that we individually, maybe we even as a church, have compromised. Compromise has its place, but at the same time, it has no place in our faith and in our relationship with you. So may you speak boldly and clearly to each and every one of us. Speak, Lord, for we are listening in your name. Amen. This smells too bad. We're going to put this over here for a while. That's what some compromises do. All right, let's take a look at the churches in Revelation. If you have your Bible with me, uh, look over with me at Revelation chapter 2. Again, if you've been with us, we've been looking at the different churches that Jesus is writing to, that Jesus is speaking to. These are little local churches in a local community in their context, and he says something different to each of them. Some of them could sound kind of similar, but he's talking specifically to them in their context. Typically, we see Jesus say, here's something you're doing really well. Good job. Keep it up. But here's something you really need to work on. Like, this isn't so good. Here's what I'm telling you to do moving forward. We typically see those three parts in Jesus' words to these early churches. The church we're going to see this morning is the church of Pergamum. Here's the words. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum. Right, and again, these are Jesus' words. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Let's stop there for a second. If you've been with me the last three weeks total, you've noticed the beginning of each of these is Jesus describing himself in a different way. Have you caught that? If you go back, go back and look if you want to. You see that he talks about himself. Last week we saw that these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. And that was very important for that local church. The way that Jesus is describing himself here to the church of Pergamum is super important. He says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. You see where we're going? Compromise. I wonder what Jesus is going to talk to them about. The way he describes himself is very specific to the context of that church, specifically their struggles. Here's what he says next, verse 13. He says, I know where you live, 
where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So a couple things we can learn about the early church of Pergamum as well as this city. It was obvious that they lived in a pagan world for Jesus to say twice the place where Satan lives. <laughs> to say, I know where you live. I know your city. I know your community. I know your context. I know it's evil. I know where you live. There had to have been persecution because he brings it up. Antipas was martyred. So he brings up, I know the struggles, I know the difficulties, I know the evil that you're living amongst. He says, good job though, because you're holding tight to me. You've remained faithful to me and my name. Literally says, yet, even though I know where you live, even though this is a place where Satan has his throne, that's pretty extreme, he says, yet you remain true to my name. So they held tightly to the name of Jesus. When there's a lot of other pagan idols, when there's a lot of other false gods, when there's a lot of other false teachers, when there's a lot of other ways to live and believe, no, this church said, we will remain faithful to Jesus and only Jesus' name. They held tight and remained faithful to him no matter what. That's a pretty big deal. I would love for Jesus to always be able to say that about our church. I know where you live. It's not perfect. I think we live in a pretty great place, but... No matter what, we're always going to hold on to Jesus' name, no matter what else. No matter who else, we always remain faithful to the name of Jesus. They remained true to Jesus. Verse 14. Now, that was the good part. Don't forget the other side. He's like, well, like, you're good, but let's not get you a big ego here. Verse 14. Here's the other side. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You don't need to know too, too much. If you want to dive in, that's a great study on your own on what the doctrines of Balaam and the doctrines of, of the Nicolaitans were. But bottom line... They were holding to, there was many in this church that also held to these other teachings, these other beliefs, these other ways of living. Are you ready for this? We just read in verse 14, I have some things against you. There are some of you who in the words here are hold to the teachings of, and he gives a couple examples. So they're holding to someone and something other than Jesus. Now in verse 13, we read, yet you remain true to my name. True to my name, that remain true to my name, and that hold to, in the Greek, the exact same word for holding on. The exact same word. So Jesus is saying, I know where you live. I know the evil that you're in, living in. Yet great job, because you're holding tightly to my name. But this is what I have against you. You're also holding on to other things. So this is what the church of Pergamum looked like. Holding tightly to Jesus but also holding tightly to other teachings, to other beliefs, to other ways of living. You see the problems with living like this? Compromise is great in a lot of areas and in a lot of relationships, and, and I'm not opposed to a lot of that. We just talked about that. But in your faith, with your relationship with Jesus, there is no room for compromise. What did Jesus describe himself as? He says, I'm the one that has the sharp, double-edged sword. 
And here's a, a, a church, a group of believers that are holding tightly to Jesus, but also holding on to the things of the world. They got feet in both camps. They're holding on to something other than Jesus. So the good, the bad, here's the call to action. Here's what Jesus calls them to do. Verse 16, he says, repent. We've talked about that word before. It means to turn around, to change something. Repent, therefore. In other words, because you're holding on to too many things. You're holding on to me and something else. There should not be an and something else. He says, you have to change, you have to repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them. That would be those that are holding on to more than just Jesus. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You see how that tied back up to the verse we just read at the beginning. He says, no, 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 remember, I'm the one with the double-edged sharp sword. He doesn't say, I'm the one with the butter knife. No, you use a butter knife to spread peanut butter and jelly on your, on your sandwich. No, you use a double-edged sword to cut through something. And Jesus is saying, if you're still holding on to me and, it's time to cut through it. Cut out the compromise. That's the call to action here. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you. Fight against them. I wouldn't want to fight with the guy that had a sword in his mouth. That's just me. <laughs> Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you. We'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth, that double-edged sword. Cut out the compromise. Cut out the compromise in your relationship with Jesus. Cut out your compromise in your faith. You can't hold on to Jesus and. It's hold on to Jesus. That's it. End of sermon. You guys all good? Got it? Great. All right, let's keep going a little bit more because here's where we get stuck. <laughs> here's where we get, some of you are like, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm, I got it, Brian, I'm ready to go. <laughs> My guess is you need to stay for another 10 minutes so we can talk about how to do that. It's not as helpful to just say, well, cut the compromise out. Hold on to Jesus and let go of everything else. That's exactly what we need to do, but it's a little bit more difficult to really wrap our heads around that. This local church of Pergamon, that's what they struggled with. They got so used to compromising in so many other areas, which I would say we get used to compromising in a lot of areas, that my guess, I don't know this, I'm making an assumption, maybe this is a bad assumption, but I think it's possible that this local church did not realize the extent that they were compromising. I don't think they realized how bad it had gotten. Because they're holding on to Jesus, even in the midst of persecution, they're holding on tightly. And over time, I think their other hand went from holding tight to Jesus to, well, what about this and what about this? And before you know it, it's holding on to Jesus and. And I think that's where we get stuck. I didn't mean to compromise. It just kind of happened. I don't, I don't know how I got to this place of Jesus and instead of only Jesus. It's just like, you know, life and it happens and we don't have a great reason. It's hard to pinpoint, isn't it? So here's what I want us to do. I want us to figure out this next part. Hold on to and let go of. That's what we've got to answer, or else this is the most unhelpful 30 minutes of your life. <laughs> Hold on to Jesus and only Jesus, but we have to figure out how do we let go of all the other stuff. Now, when I'm saying let go, please understand, that doesn't mean you're not involved with other things, you're not doing other things, like don't take that route, but your hope should only be in Jesus. Your faith should only be in Jesus. Your trust should only be in Jesus. Does that make sense? Not if that makes sense. Yes. So can we hold on tightly to Jesus and still be involved with other things? Absolutely. Can you hold on tightly to Jesus and still be 
part and active in other parts. Yes, absolutely, but our hope, our trust, our faith is only in him. James is super helpful, super practical. If you wanna do a book study, I highly recommend you even start in James. Once you get through the Gospels, start in James. James is very helpful to take the ideas of, of holding on to Jesus and letting go of everything else. He makes that very practical. Here's James's word and words, and we're gonna figure out how to make this helpful and applicable for us. James chapter four, starting in verse four. Get ready for some harsh words. You ready? Buckle up. You adulterous people. Told you it was gonna be rough. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? In other words, if you're friends with the world, you are an enemy of God. That's rough. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Real quick, that adulterous people, understand the language that's being used there. The idea of you have committed yourselves to God and you're cheating on him with an and. Does that make sense? Just like the language we would use in that. And I have a spouse that's supposed to be my everything here within relationships, but if I have an and, well, that's called adultery. That's cheating. And so Jesus, through James, is saying that's the way it feels to God when we have Jesus and. So that's why he's using the phrase, you adulterous people. He's helping them understand that it's only God, not God and. He goes on, or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously, he's a jealous God, longs for the spirit, he has caused to dwell in us. But look at this, don't miss verse six. He gives us more, what? Grace. Pause there for a second. I have no doubt that we're all in some form or fashion compromising, right? It's, like, it's a constant battle, it's a constant tension. And let me say verse six to you. He gives you more grace, period. So yes, we wanna figure out how to do this better, how to hold tighter to Jesus and how to let go of other, every other thing, yes. But before we even get to that, before James even gets to that, he brings up that word grace. He gives us grace. Verse seven, he starts to give us the practical application of how to hold tightly to Jesus and how to let go of everything else. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That speaks to the compromise, double-minded. I'm trying to do two things. I'm thinking in two ways. I've given my mind and heart to two different people. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That's a lot, so let me break it down for you. There's gonna be five words. If you're a note taker, you're gonna love this part. If you're not a note taker, be a note taker just for a few minutes. This is gonna be helpful for you. There's gonna be five words we're gonna look at from what James just said. The early church of Pergamum, that's their struggle. They're Jesus and, and James is recognizing, guess what, not just for that early church, but for most local churches. It's Jesus and. So he says, here's five words to loosen that grip of the and to hold tighter to Jesus, and to let go of the grip of everything else. Here's what I want you to be listening for. Your one word. I'm gonna give you five. There's one that's gonna hit you between the eyes. So hold on to that word. You can ignore the other four for right now, but for right now, focus on that one. Let me go through the five, and I'm praying that one of those hits you right where, where you need to hear it. Here's the first word, submit. He says, submit then yourselves to God. Here's the question to ask. Who is my ultimate authority? Submit. You start loosening the grip of your grip on the world by first submitting to God and recognizing that he is the ultimate authority. Why do I believe that? 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created. I don't need to say anything else. That pretty much sums it up in my opinion. He is the ultimate authority. That's why there's no compromise. See, compromise says, well, like, you're kind of right, I'm kind of right, it's your preference, it's my preference. No, the word of God is a sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus has a sword that is a sharp, double-edged sword, meaning there is right and there is wrong. There is God's way and then everybody else's way. You either follow his way or you're following your way. So who is your ultimate authority? If it's not God, you're doing this. If there's any other authority that you're saying, well, I kind of really like to, even though God says... He's not your ultimate authority. Does that make sense? So we first submit, saying, Jesus, you are the ultimate authority. It's your way, even if I don't like it, even if I don't agree with it. Now, nobody likes being told what to do. I get that. Let me give you a different perspective, a way to think through it. For me, I find it super helpful that God tells me, here's how you live. I'm like, man, that's, that's fantastic. I thought I had to figure this out on my own. <laughs> I'll do what he tells me to do. Easier said than done, for sure, but it's our choice. His word, absolute. Who is your ultimate authority? Submit then to God, and then the next word is resist. We're told, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist. Here's the question. What do I need to say no to? What do I need to say no to? Not no to as in like busyness. I'm not talking about busyness. I'm talking about the things that are, are contradictory to how God would want us to live, think, and act. Right, Galatians 5 has this great passage, look it up if you want to, write that down, it'd be a good study this week, where it talks about these two sides of God's side and then like the world side and like the spirit side and the sinful nature side. And he says, they are in contradiction. He says, so that you can't do just whatever you want. Compromise says, I wanna do whatever I want. I want a little bit of this and I want a little bit of that. I want some orange juice and I want some milk and it's supposed to taste good and it doesn't. <laughs> That's what we want, and so he says, resist. There's things you need to say no to because God tells you to say no to them. What do you need to resist? I'd also tell you, if that's your word, let me just talk specifically to you for a second. If you're like, man, I, I don't resist a lot. I kind of just do what I want when I want them. That's gonna be your word. Also write down this passage, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 talks all about temptation and how you fight against it and how you resist it. So look up into that if that's your word. Here's your next word, near. So we submit to God, we resist the devil, we say no to things because our ultimate authority is God. You see how they build on each other. Then we come near to God. Come near to God and he will come near to us, we're told. Near, there's your word. Let me ask you this question. Where are my actions taking me? Where do my actions take me? Where do my thoughts take me? Everything we do moves us in a direction, right? Think of your family. The way that you talk to your family moves you closer to your family or it puts walls up in your family, agreed? How you act at work moves you closer to that promotion or further away from that promotion or maybe just closer to being fired or further away from being fired. If you choose not to show up to work, you are getting closer to being fired, got it? Our actions move us in a direction, specifically talking about your relationship with Jesus. Are your current actions moving you closer to Jesus or not? When you come to church, when you log in and be part of church, that is moving you closer to Jesus, in my opinion. 
when you're giving to, to Awala needs and you're meeting needs in our community, when you're, you're giving so kids can have Bibles, in my opinion, which I think is right in this case, I think it moves you closer to Jesus as long as your heart is right. Not everything is church-related. What's the first thing you think of when you wake up in the morning? What are you putting in your heart? What are you putting in your mind? What are you looking at? What are you paying attention to? What websites are you logging into? How much time are you spending on Facebook and social media? What are you saying when you log into social media? What are your actions moving you closer towards? Maybe near is your word. If near is your word, I would tell you to look at Matthew 6 and 7 this week. Seek first the kingdom of God. Start there. Just seek him first. I'm going to give you a little homework assignment. If this is your word, you're going to have some fun this week. I want you to pick an aspect of Jesus, and I want you to research it. Pick an aspect of Jesus. Like, seriously, talk to me. Somebody shout out something about Jesus, a quality or character trait of Jesus. Just give me one. Loving kindness. Those are two great. I asked for one. I got two. That's great. Take one of those. Kindness. What does it mean for Jesus to be kind? Give me examples of Jesus being kind. Find stories in the Gospels where Jesus was kind. Where does he tell us to act that way? Like, dig in. How do I research things about Jesus? The same way you would research anything else. So if you've been following me in my life at all, you know that I have a dog. And I say it like that intentionally. I don't know anything about a dog. I don't know how to train dogs. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with dogs. I, like, I don't know anything about dogs. So guess what we did when we got a dog? We bought a book on training dogs. I watched a bunch of videos by this guy named Zach on YouTube about training dogs. I went to the vet and asked a bunch of questions about what I'm supposed to feed this dog and how many times I'm supposed to feed this dog and what happens if I forget to feed this dog. <laughs> I have to exercise this dog. How many, like, I just asked a bunch of questions and I Googled things and I went to experts in the field and I bought books and I watched videos. You can do the same thing when you're trying to dig into Jesus and about him. Ask people, look up things. Bible Gateway is a great opportunity. Got Questions is a great website. The Bible Project are great videos. There's lots of ways for you to dig in, find a way to dig in. All right, let me move on. I'll preach too much if I'm not careful. All right, next one, purify. So we come near to God, he will come near to you, and we're told to purify your hearts. Here's the question, what have I allowed in that needs to be out? Think of a filter here. Right? If you had coffee this morning, whether it was here or at home, you had to have used some version of a coffee filter or else what gets in your coffee? All the nasty grinds and grounds and like nobody wants to drink that, right? Something was allowed in that should not have been in. So in your hearts, what have you allowed in that just needs to get out and what filters are you beginning to put in place? If that's your word to purify, again, doesn't mean perfect, but we need to put some things in place. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 is a great prayer to pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and help me change my life. Help me figure out what to do next. It's a great passage, a great prayer to make your own. Purify what needs to get out. It's already in what needs to get out, and it will only happen by the grace of God. That's why you pray to him. You can try as much as you want, but it's the grace of God that pulls it out. Last one, and we're told to humble ourselves, humility. Here's my question on this one for you, if this is your word. What am I comparing my life to? I'm convinced that we end up in a place of compromise for two reasons, convenience and comparison, one of those two. Convenience, it's a lot easier because you don't have to fight. Well, instead of fighting or losing, let's compromise. 
right? So it's convenient. In a lot of ways, it's easier. Convenience, but at the same time, we're comparing. We compromise our beliefs because, well, what is everybody else doing? See, the early church of Pergamum, they began to compromise because, remember where they lived? Jesus said, I know where you live. I know the difficulties. I know it's Satan's world where you live. It's his city. They had influence, influences pulling him in, them in so many different directions. For them, I think it was just a matter of being overwhelmed and comparing themselves to everybody else. So we humble ourselves by comparing our lives only to Jesus. Philippians chapter two, if that's your word, if humility is your word, go to Philippians chapter two. There's a passage there that describes Jesus. It says that Jesus became like a servant, that he humbled himself, was obedient even to death on the cross. That's who we're supposed to follow. Like, don't miss that. When we say be like Christ, humbling ourselves, obedient to the point of death on a cross. I don't know how you get much lower and humble than that. So those are your five words. I pray one of those hits you. Something to work on and work towards. But keep in mind, all of that doesn't matter if Jesus isn't your Lord and your Savior. It's great to always be moving towards and, and to be working towards. We're always going to find ourselves kind of in this middle tension of compromise. It's going to happen. It's life. But if Jesus is not your Lord and your Savior, there's no possible way to hold tightly to him moving forward. To say Jesus is your Lord means he's your ultimate authority. He's your king. He's the king and we are not. To say he's our savior says, I can't do this on my own. I want to resist and I want to submit and I want to be pure and I want to be humble and I want to. But if he's not your savior, I'm telling you, you won't be able to. It's what we read in verse six, that he gives us more grace. The early church of Pergamum, the local church of Pergamum was a compromising church. But don't miss what they did well. That in the midst of where they lived, they held tightly to Jesus. And they struggled with, with all of us. From two hands to Jesus becomes one hand on Jesus and one hand somewhere else. But when Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, through his grace, his patience, his guidance, his love, the people he puts in your life, we can make steps to hold tightly just to Jesus once again. I want to give you a chance to start there. I hope you all have your word, but before you do anything with that word, again, in your heart, he needs to be your Lord and your Savior. At home and here in the room, if you'd close your eyes, let's pray together. Romans 10 tells us that if we believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, and we say it with our lips that he is alive, that we will be saved, that means he is our Lord and our Savior. If you've not made that first step, please start there, because no amount of effort will get you anywhere until you just give it over to him, your heart, your soul, your mind to him. Jesus, we come before you, recognizing our need for you and recognizing your greatness. You are our Lord. You are our Savior. 
thank you for giving us the, the gift of eternal life, not by anything that we can earn, not by anything we would ever do to deserve it. Thank you for giving us that gift of grace and love and forgiveness. Out of that love, I pray that we desire to move closer to you. I pray that we desire to hold more tightly to you, that our desire is to never hold on to you and, but only to you, to cut the compromise, to hold on to you and let go of everything else. So whatever word speaks to us, whatever word your Holy Spirit is putting on our hearts and mind, I pray we dig in, that we lean in, that we allow you to transform us from the inside out. Whatever our word might be, submit, resist, near, purify, humble. Speak to us, Lord. Move in our hearts. Help us to cut out the compromise and hold tightly to you. In Jesus' name, amen.